being grabbed by Davis County Sheriff on the way because I was a Camaro on a country back road. I know now not to do that. I thought I was taking a shortcut. It turns out I was taking a risk. I got there just in time to get settled in, say hi to everybody, and go straight to bed. Well, after we threw cheese balls, of course. And what followed was a week of chaos and early wake-ups and late bedtimes and a lot of games and really good preaching, really good worship, hanging out in the cabin, venturing out into the cabin, going on hikes. We're still working on that one. Night hikes are not my favorite thing. But we found everybody. I think we came back with everyone. And the takeaway from that week, to sum up the preaching, was... Not only is Jesus worthy of our praise, not only is he worthy of our attention, our time, our efforts, he's worthy because of his sacrifice, and that calls us to an obedience in sharing his word, living his word, and just trying to comprehend the magnitude of our Savior in Jesus Christ. And taking that in such a way that teenagers can grasp it and begin to unravel that mystery for themselves because as much as they don't want me to say it they don't know everything but i love false creek because it breeds community wisdom and that 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 injection of just the gospel of worship of community of nothing else for a week straight is so refreshing it's funny the first time i ever went to falls creek was one of the worst years of my life it wasn't with this church don't worry it was with First Baptist downtown. Everything that could go wrong went wrong, and it culminated in me spiking Allison, my wife, in the face with a volleyball. True story. When she gets here in August, you can all ask, just bam, took her out. She's okay, and we're still together somehow. This week with Lynn Lane culminated in stronger relationships, refreshed devotion to the Lord, and me no longer being the new weird youth pastor. Just the weird youth pastor. And getting closer to the kids with Keith, with our wonderful leaders who went with us to our partner churches, who I'm looking forward to seeing again. That was more than a word. Um, my vision for the youth. I'm still working on like the poster board tagline. We, this is what we can put on t-shirts. I'm, I'm actually talking, I'm working with Josh to schedule a vision night, probably around back to school in August where the kids, the parents, whoever is interested can come in. We'll do a talk like this. But rather than be all about the word, I want to cast our mission statement, our vision, what I want to accomplish in the next year, and then just open it up to a Q&A, as dangerous as that is, because I want to take care of these kids, not because, you know, I get to be the youth pastor and all hoity-toity about it, but because they're your children. And there's an expectation that I lead and shepherd and teach well, and I want to know how to do that from the horse's mouth and let you in on the nice t-shirtable mission statement. Right now, the mission statement is taking the shape of something like discipling kids to love those around them, live in community, and know Jesus deeper. That's not quite the t-shirt version. It's some form of that. When we talk again in August, you'll have the you know, we get t-shirts and matching tattoos, I mean, um, stickers, and whew, that was close. And then the vision statement. To take, 
to make students into disciples who make disciples in a world that needs to know the love of God. And again, those will be much more merchandisable in about a month, but that's the kind of thousand foot view of where we're at right now. I'm still learning so much every week with Josh. I think I get a grasp on something and then he punches me with a new idea to start thinking about, like planning my whole year. I barely plan the day. I'm surprised I changed outfits. My, the one from this morning didn't survive lunch. Um, so that may not have been as succinct as you were hoping, but it is there. I think if you want like a main goal, like my personal goal, you may be surprised. It's not growth. I mean, right now I don't really care about numbers, which is weird to say in the Baptist church, given the cooperative program. That's not me throwing shade. We just talk about it a lot. But my focus right now is not numbers. It's depth. I want to go deep with the kids that we do have. And then that will just naturally attract their friends, the people close to them. I mean, I'm thankful that your grandsons get to visit because that just helps foster community, the, the, the obvious relations there with the other kids. But I want to focus on depth before we focus on numbers. I want to train up those we have. I want to take them deep into the scripture on a level that's appropriate. I'm going to go really deep tonight, so buckle up, you two. But with that depth, with that understanding, with that experience, we can then turn our focus outward because I'm kind of stepping into a blank slate from what we've talked about. So I get to build from the foundation. And that was intimidating at first, but it's a unique opportunity to refocus entirely on the mission, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to the end of the age. Oh, and Jesus will be right there with us. But doing that as students. I could go on and on about this. Should we get into the word or do you want more? I can talk all day about the kids. So you may have been wondering what I would open up with being the youth pastor and what hip, young, engaging passages we're going to be in. So if you'll turn with me to Exodus. If you can't find it, start at the beginning and just turn a few pages until you get there. Chapter three, specifically. And I was never an iPad guy until I started using my phone for my sermon notes and I need to join the club. Or any glasses. I don't know yet. There's a lot I like about the Bible, if you haven't noticed. One of the things that gives me chills to this day, kind of that when you read it, it's that Mufasa moment. Ooh, say it again. Thank you. You're the, thank you. When God says, I am it still makes me pause, reread what I've just read, look at what's going on. It makes me, this is serious. It's like I can still feel the weight of those words. And in Exodus chapter three, we pick up with Moses as he's about to encounter God face to bush. He'll eventually encounter God face to back of head, but that won't be for a few chapters. <sighs> Let's get briefly caught up on who Moses is. In the beginning of his life, he was put in a basket, put in the river by his mother because Pharaoh was doing horrible things to the firstborn sons of the Israelite people that were in slavery. Ironically, he was then picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, raised as a pauper prince, wealth, royalty, riches, training, nice clothes, dates, servants, everything that he never deserved. But he goes out into 
the working fields where the Israelites are being slave-driven, and he sees one of his people being whipped wrongly by an Egyptian slave driver, and in a fit of rage, Moses kills the Egyptian slave driver. Uh-oh, I'm the prince of this whole nation, and I just murdered one of my father's servants. What do I do now? He did what any sane person would do. He ran for his life and didn't stop running until he was in the middle of nowhere and just kind of settled there for a long time to get married, have children, start a farm. We find him shepherding in this scene. All of that completely forgotten. Moses completely in exile. His people left behind, his riches left behind, and sin weighing over all he had run from. Just out in the middle of the field, continuing what he could scrape together of his life. This is where we pick up in chapter 3. I'm going to be in verse 6. No, I'm not going to be in verse 6. I'm going to be in the first verse. I don't know why I wrote 6. Whoops. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he saw the bush was on fire, but not consumed. I have to imagine that Moses is exhausted by the evening point of following sheep around all day in the heat of the desert. He's also a very well-educated man. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. He grew up around wealth and royalty. And now he's exhausted at the end of the day, and he just sees a bush catch fire, but not being burned up. My first thought would have been, I'm dehydrated. <laughs> this is not good. I must be hallucinating. He must have thought the same thing. But instead, I must go look at this. It's, it's, it's a remarkable sight, he says. It's unbelievable. Why isn't the bush being consumed? A bit of life advice. If you see a fire spontaneously combust and not burn up the thing that it's touching, it may not mean God is in the room. It may. But... Moses doesn't do the safest thing here. I'm sure the Spirit was leading him. I just find it funny that his first response was, I'm going to go check that out. When the Lord saw that Moses had come over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Don't take another step closer. In fact, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then the voice continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was terrified to look at God. Let me go back over that. Remove your shoes from your feet, for you are standing on holy ground the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, you're finished with a working day, and this bush lights a flame, and this voice booms, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And Moses couldn't even look. The weight, you can feel this moment just hanging. I can see it vividly. I'm a visual thinker. I just, I can, I can't see what Moses was seeing. I can't imagine it, but the weight that was in this moment, the pressure he must have felt, the, this presence. And then the Lord said, 
I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppression. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and bring them to the land that is good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with all that you need and more. In the middle of his exile, the biggest rejection of his life that Moses placed on himself among his failures leading out from what he could what he had, riches and a second chance at life, to squandering in the desert, an image of what eventually Israel would be doing, God shows up in a big way, a miraculous way, a way that Moses can't believe, that he can't look at, that he can't stand before. And what does he say? I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And I've heard my people crying out for my help, and I have come down from on high to set them free. love it, man. Then, of course, he goes on to one of the most famous lines in the early chapters of Exodus. Moses, in a few verses, says, who who am I supposed to say sent me? Who are you? I'm nobody. I can't even talk right. I stutter. Who am I supposed to say sent me to free the entire nation of Israel from, I don't know, the most powerful nation on the planet at the time? What am I supposed to tell them? I don't exactly have the best resume. Pauper prince, murderer, shepherd. Kind of, how, kind of how I felt like when I walked up to Keith. He's like, what's your resume? It's like, um, intern? Keith was a lot nicer than Pharaoh. I'll tell you that. God says, tell them I am who I am has sent you. If you go back to the Hebrew, that's where we get the word Yahweh. I am. And you can analyze and overanalyze and dive deep on that statement and what it means and what God is trying to say his real name in, real name is. Along the way, some Christians got Jehovah out of it, which just, we're going to ignore that completely. It, the easy explanation is it's a, mystery, it's a misspelling. But I am. He says it, and he, he says it when, he said, when he tells Moses who he is, the God of your ancestors. He says it again. I am has sent you. What does it mean? We're going to put a pin in that. I'm not going to answer my own question. This is a sermon technique. I'm going to let you peek behind the curtain. I'm baiting you into the next scripture we're going to read so that you can get the answer. I'm leaving you hanging on purpose. I'm building tension. And you're all falling for it, right? I'm now breaking the tension I built out. I'll stop. If we can all go over to John chapter 8, I'll answer this question. Why is this so important? Why does the ground shake when this statement is said? When God says his name, who he is. The Gospels we know very well. The story of Jesus being born to Mary, growing up into his ministry, calling his disciples, and preaching the good news of salvation for all for about three-ish years, ultimately going to the cross to die and then be resurrected for all of us. This moment in John, he's coming off. Where's my note? I didn't have a book. I didn't put my. I didn't leave my bookmark in here for this note, and now I can't find it. Coming off the feeding of the five thousand in John, coming back into the city, Jesus is confronted by a crowd. 
this is a weird, it's, this comes right after an odd break in John, uh, the adulterous woman forgiven, the famous verse of whoever is without sin, let them cast the first stone. Whether or not this conversation between Jesus and the crowd is right after that moment or it's later is a bit unclear, but the timeline is feeding the 5,000, coming back into the city, the, forgive, the forgiveness of the adulteress at some point, and then either that crowd or that crowd later, it's hard to say, is, has confronted Jesus. It's like, who do you think you are? Well, time out. You're going around forgiving sins and performing miracles and telling people that God's kingdom has come. It's like, who the heck are you? I just said heck in church. That's probably what they said. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who who are you to be doing these things and saying these things to, to forgive sins? That's blasphemy. God alone can forgive sins. In verse 53 of chapter 8, this argument kind of comes to a head. Fifty-two. I'm sorry. And the Jews said to him, "Now we know you're demon possessed. Abraham's dead, and so are the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died?" Jesus has taken a moment to to confront the crowd. Finally, they continue challenging him. They continue questioning who he is, his identity, his authority to speak to such things, to perform such miracles. And Jesus finally tells them, I say to you, the truth I offer, the truth of salvation, the truth of freedom from the truth, the truth of freedom from sin will set you free from your slavery. And the Israelites go, hold on, wait a minute. Wait, slavery? We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. In, in this day and time, they were under the occupation of Rome, mind you. Easily forgotten nation. Very small power in what would be Italy one day. Inconsequential. Caesar, maybe you've heard of him. Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, crazy Neb, as we called him at camp, and I love that. Built a giant idol, put some people in the pizza oven. I'm sure the exile was no big deal. Or we can take it all the way to Egypt and Moses and the 400 years of slavery. I'm sure they've forgotten. We're children of Abraham, you Nazarene. We've never been slaves to anyone. Ignoring the Roman flags flying in the cities behind them. And I, I have to imagine Jesus just went. And they say, what do you mean? Are you greater than Abraham? You must be demon possessed. You're saying, you're, you're saying that we, you can set us free and that we'll be saved and that no one will taste death. A- Abraham was the greatest of us that ever lived and he's dead. My page flipped on me. Jesus' answer. If I, glorify, if I glorify myself in this, my glory is nothing. My father, of whom you see, of who you are saying, he's our God, the God of Abraham. He's the one who glorifies me, who gives me my authority. Yet you do not know him. 
I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be lying, like you. (laughs) You don't know God. I know God. In fact, if I said I didn't know him, I'd be a liar, like you. I love it. But I do know him as my father. I keep his word. Your father Abraham would have rejoiced to see my day. In fact, he did see it and was glad. And the Jews are stunned at this statement. You've met Abraham? You're not even 50. You're a young man. You're still fit and attractive like J.D. You've seen Abraham? He's long dead. What do you mean? Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So mind-blowing, in fact, that the crowd's response is to pick up stones and start throwing them, and Jesus has to magically escape because it wasn't his time to die. He does a few miraculous escapes. It's pretty funny to watch sometimes when he just is gone. Why was there immediate response, not words, but stones? Because these Jews that love Abraham so much would have known exactly what Jesus was saying because he would have said that exact same word that God said to Moses several pages ago, generations. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And what makes it worse, I deep dove this a little bit because the the literal Greek here for that statement is just fascinating. Some translations just say truly, comma, for the emphasis. Some say truly, truly, I say to you. If you go back to the literal Greek and want to have like Mycenaean Greek to English translation, what Jesus is saying is, may it be so. I speak truly to you. Before Abraham, I am. May it be so is where we get the modern amen that translation. When we're saying amen at the end of our prayers or when something is really good or when when Keith just nails a point, amen, may it be so. Before God, may it be so according to your will, even. If anyone else had said this, it would have been blasphemy of the highest order. But it's not. It's Jesus saying as plainly as he ever could, May it be so that I speak true. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, not I will be. The present declarative, I am. And their response is stones. They can't believe he would say that. That they would. They, they, Jesus had already lumped himself in the same category as Abraham. This is unheard of. Then he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And I've come to set my people free. Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I 
I love looking at these two passages when I forget who it is I'm praying to, going to church every Sunday for, whom I hope is, why I'm doing all these things, who I'm reading this Bible about, when life is distracting, when my frame gets moved, when I'm down, when I'm too high up, even angry, frustrated, sad, run through all the emotions that pull you away from this intimate view of Jesus. At Israel's lowest point, 400 years of slave driving, God steps down out of heaven and says, I have come to set my people free and crushes Pharaoh under his boot like a bug. Several generations later, God steps down, takes on flesh, not to crush us or Rome or our enemies, but to let himself be crushed. Not to save just Israel, but to save all of us. I love the parallels between Exodus and the end of the Gospels. Exodus was the salvation of the Jews from the greatest enemy of their political world. The Gospels are our salvation. Salvation for all from the enemy of the world. The same God that decimated Pharaoh's people and his forces and parted the Red Sea is the same God that let himself be beaten and broken and bruised and spill out blood and water separated on the cross. And I'm not saying these two timelines are connected and are causal and that you have to have one without the other. I just think that the Bible is poetry. It rhymes for a reason. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus. The same God, same I am. Mufasa. Say it again. You get it? Oh, I love it. I, oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of your fathers. Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, look at the beginning of the Gospel of John. How does he start it? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through the, and through the Word, all things were made on heaven and in earth. I guess, the Israel, I guess the Jews should have been read John's Gospel. I don't think it was out yet. Maybe that was the problem. And specifically to you two, the whole book is about one God and hit the gargantuan effort he goes to for us. And no, there's no modern-day Egypt. We're not in slavery to Pharaoh anymore. But the enemy that Jesus faced is still here. And this book has never been more important. Of course, in any day and age until the end times, you could say that, because we're not at the end times yet. So I'm grandstanding a little bit. Stories like that are in the Bible. These powerful moments, these epic scenes, these battles between good and evil, kings stepping down off their thrones and lighting bushes on fire. Maybe that's not the coolest thing. It's weird, that's for sure. I am. Who do you worship? Who do you serve? Why do we do these things? I am. Huh? I told you I would answer the question. Why does God call himself that? It was a trick 
I don't know. <laughs> Theologists still don't know. It's one of the great mysteries we may never unravel until we're all in the eternal worship service in the sky. That's that's a very that's a, that's a bad that's bad taste in heaven with God forever. What I think it may be in the Exodus, I am on Calvary, I am before creation, I am after creation, I am. In the fire, I am. In the flood, I am. On the hilltops, in the plenty, in the droughts, in the famine, I am. Every other deity seems to have limits. They're, they have little patrons and pantheons that they rule over. Like, I'm, I'm the god of grass. <sighs> okay. I'm tired of mowing my lawn. Please make the grass stop growing. Uh, you can't help me with my depression, though, but thanks. I am. Oh, I could go on and on. I think that's a good place to stop. It's probably past our bedtime at this point, right? If you'll bow your heads with me, we'll pray us out. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather for uh, Keith's trust in me or his recklessness to Trust me with his flock for all that you've done for us from the Exodus to Calvary and what you still have in store. Because you are, and you say it so that I am. And you reminded us when you came and walked with us, and you remind us for eternity that you will be, you will reign, you will be victorious, you will be our hope, and you are our salvation, and we can never thank you enough. It's with humble hearts with glad hearts that we praise you, your son's name, now and forever. All God's people said.